Hello, and welcome to Down to Earth, Cornell Conversations About. I am Dr. Danielle Eisman, visiting lecturer in the Department of Communication at Cornell University and co-author of the recently published book, Our Changing Menu, Climate Change and the Foods We Love and Need. I started this podcast in the fall of 2018 with grant funding from Engage Cornell. I also recruited a small group of students to help me develop a podcast on climate change. Well, the group has since graduated, and after a few more iterations of the podcast, I have now recruited a new team of students to help me focus on the podcast in a new way. We are going to start focusing on science communication. So currently, I teach several courses in science, environment, and risk communication. I have degrees in chemistry, marketing, carbon management, and consumer behavior. Also a, a culinary arts degree, but we don't talk about that. Um, but that background provides me with a perfect blend of experience and education for communicating about climate change and science. Since I've been teaching at Cornell, I've developed some new ideas about science communication and have started to explore how we can use humor and storytelling to promote public understanding of science. So I, along with my new team, Brianna and Daniel, will be discussing science communication. I'll be adapting some of my lectures for this podcast, and Dan Daniel and Brianna will join in with their questions or comments about the concepts we cover. The first eight episodes of this new season will cover science communication principles, and then we will start to discuss how comedy and storytelling can be used to help increase engagement with certain audiences. As you will see, there is no one approach to communication that will reach everyone. What is science communication, other than communicating about science? More importantly, what is communication? Well, if we turn to the formal definition, communication is the process of generating meaning by sending and receiving verbal and nonverbal symbols and signs that are influenced by multiple contexts. Not only is it integrated into every part of our lives, academic, professional, civic, and personal, but it also helps us fulfill our needs, such as our physical needs, social needs, identity, and instrumental needs. But beyond this simple interchange between verbal and nonverbal cues, there are norms that influence the way in which we communicate and how we communicate. We all learn this process over time, which is influenced by culture, experiences, education, peers, family, and more. Science communication is a process, just like regular communication. But people in the field have narrowed down a more specific definition for us. Science communication is defined as the use of appropriate skills, media, activities, and dialogue to produce one or more of the following personal responses to science, which include awareness, enjoyment, interest, opinions, and understanding of science. This is called the vowel analogy, where science communication should produce awareness of new aspects of science, enjoyment of science as a form of entertainment or art, interest in scientific information, opinions that help form, reform, or confirm attitudes about science, and understanding of science, the process and the social impacts of it. Super easy to do, right? 
Well, in theory, the process can seem rather straightforward. You have your message or what information you want to share. You have a clearly established audience and your method for sending that information. You should be able to put that information out there and your audience will receive the message. But it doesn't always work out that way. You have to compete with other things crying out for attention. Existing beliefs, norms, culture, perceptions, attitudes, the latest Kardashian drama, sports things, food prices, gas shortages, Bitcoin, the neighbor's dog, TikTok trends, etc. All of that competes with our attention on a daily basis. What sounds more exciting? Britney Spears' secret neck tattoo? Or a new organ found on the Arabidopsis thaliana plant? The plant, right? What's unique about the plant story is that it's commonly used in labs to study different aspects of biochemistry. For example, when I was an undergrad, I worked in a lab and we used the plant to study how different enzymes played a role in rapid, rapidly growing cells, such as cancer cells. I used to have to sit at a microscope for hours and pollinate tiny flowers by hand. I do not miss those days. But not everyone has an existing relationship with this plant, so more people might be inclined to read about Brittany's tattoo rather than read about the newly discovered plant organ. So let's see what Brianna and Daniel have to say. Um, I guess just to start out, did you have any questions about anything, at least for this introduction to science communication and environment and health communication? I didn't have too many questions yet. A lot of it looked familiar from the cash class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, for me, um, I guess since I've never taken like a science communication course, um, I thought it was really interesting about learning about like the different means of communication. Mm -hmm. So my question, I guess, was, um, so since some people seem like they're very stuck in their ways, should we focus science communication more on changing their minds or like further educating people who kind of like are willing to learn more? That's, that's a really great question. And it, it largely depends on what your goal is and that comes up a lot in you know because we we often face these difficult audiences and and you think mm -hmm. oh my gosh i have to you know i have to change these people's minds and sometimes that may be your goal uh but mm -hmm. other times it, it's you know reinforcing things that people already know or understand or or it's informing them about new advances it really comes down to the goals of it and I think, um, you know, just recently I got my, my um, semester evaluations back and there were some interesting points raised in those and, and a lot of people will say, and I've, I've heard this from other students in the past that have taken my, you know, especially the, this class, this, this science communication um, or communication in science environments and health. And they say that a lot of this sounds like common sense. And yeah, I, when you start to go through the basic principles of communication and then apply it to the context of science, environment, and health, it does sound pretty straightforward. It sounds like common sense. It sounds like things that are pretty easy processes to follow. And that's where people 
you know, start to get tripped up because it's, um, it's very difficult to do in practice. So even though we have these, these, these frameworks and these principles that are fairly straightforward, and in theory, they should work the way that they are intended to work um, or intended to explain things. And, and then it's in practice that where you encounter some of those issues of, of the way people perceive information, their existing knowledge, their perceptions, their attitudes, their culture, mm-hmm. their, their beliefs, their world values, and then things that they that are already competing for their attention. So once you start to communicate about science or environment or health, you have to break through all of that just to get your message across. And so it's very, very difficult in practice to have successful science communication campaigns or projects uh, mm-hmm. and the same with, with health and environment. It's, it's really difficult to have something successfully reach people that maybe are not interested or disagree with the information that you're providing them. Yeah. And then I guess like a follow-up would be, so like, since it is like a global issue and it does affect different communities and different people differently, Mm -hmm. how do we like get people to care about something that doesn't directly impact them? It's, uh, it's impossible. Well, I shouldn't say impossible. (laughs) But it's very hard. And you could probably think about this in your own life where you've encountered somebody that is just really not that interested in what you have to say or what you're, you know, I think probably the most common example is is what you're studying and talking to your family about it. And I always, I've asked that in to, you know, a lot of my students in science communication, like how many of you feel as though you could go home and your your family is interested in what you're studying or working on? And very few people raise their hands. And, it, and so it, it's hard to build that, that connection sometimes because people, I think one of the, the biggest barriers when um, you're talking about science in particular is that so many people feel as though they are not capable of understanding science or, or doing science. And so they kind of shut down when you start to present them with scientific information. And so it, it could be very difficult to break that identity barrier when you start to talk to people about something that's very complex, just because they, they've been told in the past that you know, you're not good at science, so just focus on something else. And I know, um, you know, when I was studying in my undergraduate, I studied chemistry and biochemistry and no one in my family really cared about what I was doing, (laughs) working in a lab all day um, and and splicing up some some RNA and some DNA and and working with radioactive material and and looking at... um, you know, rapidly growing cells that were thought to be connected to cancer. You know, so that was what I, I worked on as an undergrad. And then um, after college, I worked at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and I, um, you know, I worked in the lab again and I was working on genetic therapies for lung and heart diseases. And I would, I would go out and this is 
well, you know, another anecdote, but I, I used to go out, I was, I worked in the lab with a lot of um, fellow young women and we worked at a hospital and we were doing research. And when we would go out on the weekends, because um, we were all single and in our early 20s. And so, you know, we did the, the things that normal young people do and, and go out and, you know, enjoy, enjoy life. And so <laughs> we would be approached by young suitors, <laughs> to put it politely. And if we told that if we told them what we actually did for a living their eyes would kind of glaze over and, and they would slowly back away and then turn and go talk to somebody else uh, <laughs> so we kind of eventually gave up on on telling you know random people that we met in bars what what we did for a living we would just make something up um because we knew we would never get <laughs> we were never going to see them again but <laughs> so very poor at science communication when I was in my early 20s <laughs> like, I just gave up <laughs> but it, it's a it's a funny story because I guess I'll go back to the the material that I had intended to cover cover because um you know it, it's if we think about what communication is it's that exchange of information and so we rely on not just the words that are coming out of people's mouths, but also the tone, the, the kind of nonverbal stuff. And you know, that's why, even though this is going to be a podcast, we, we are able to see each other. We have our videos on because we, you know, I'm playing off your, your visual, you know, your facial expressions or your smiles or your nods and things like that. And that's a very important aspect of, of the communication exchange. And, and so understanding that process and how communication fulfills not just, um, you know, like our, our physical needs, but also our social needs, our identity needs, um, any kind of instrumental need. So it's, it's really an important aspect of, of being human, this aspect of, of communication and, and this process of exchanging information. And then once you kind of put it in in these, this context of specific information, um, such as uh, communicating about science or health or the environment, then there's all these extra barriers to how you communicate or what you have to communicate and communicating it in an effective way. And so if we think about communication in general, you, know, you have to mm -hmm. understand that process of communication and you know what is considered um, effective aspects of communication or effective um, factors in that process. But then also, once you start to think about what you should communicate and who you should communicate to, you have to think about you know who is your audience, what are their characteristics, what are the goals that you want to achieve, and having a, a clear idea of how you want to reach them, and all of those aspects play a critical role. And, and so you could kind of quickly put together an idea of how you want to communicate with somebody. So, you know, let's say you have news to tell your grandma. Um, so you might, you know, think about when your grandma is home, what might be a good time to reach her. Uh, you'll probably use the telephone because that might be the most um you know, the, the technology or the, the form of communication or instrument of communication that she is more most comfortable with. And then 
you might have some other pleasantries that you have to, you know, you might not dive right into the news that you want to share with grandma. You might say, oh, you know, I guess thinking about my own grandma. So I might say, oh, you know, how was your week? And, and what did you do? Did you go outside? You know, and, and then mm-hmm. get into what you want to tell her. And so, yeah, you know, that's a very, very simple example of, of how you would think about a message that you want to send to a specific person. Um, if you wanted to communicate a similar message to, let's say, uh, your best friend who is perhaps studying at another school, then you may just, you know, pop a message through Snapchat or Instagram, depending on your age group and which which one you use the most, um, or TikTok. Uh, So, (laughs) and you might do a goofy dance and send some emojis and add some music to it. And that is, you know, the message may be the same, or at least like the the main or the Mm -hmm. core message, but the way that you frame it and the process that you use and the media channel that you use is very different. If we go back to this idea of, of what communication is, um, you know, there's there's three general models that we tend to use, especially within this more technical form of communication, of, of science communication, as well as um, health and environment. And um, I could quiz Daniel because he's taken, he's heard these models over and over again, but I won't put you on the spot <laughs> unless <that. laughs> it is summer after all. <laughs> Um, but the, the three general models of communication are the transmission model, the interactional model, and the transactional model. And we like to use these because in all forms of study, we like to break things down into simple models. Um, and so communication is no different, at least as a field of study. So, you know, we have these little models to help us explain what is happening in a process. And um You know, the problem with this is that although they help us kind of visualize and understand things in a very simplistic way, that also creates a problem because they are often very simplistic or overly simplistic. And so what happens in all three of these models or in in general, the communication process is uh, we have a sender and a receiver and through this process, they are encoding and decoding messages. And so that's a, a, an important factor to understand when you think about communication. So encoding is when we turn thoughts into communication. So we might have an idea, then we turn it into a thought, and then we turn that into words or symbols or some form of communication. And then we send that to the receiver and the receiver then decodes that communication into thoughts. And so when we think about that process, if we look at the transmission model, it's really just sending that message and then it's received. So it's just a simple exchange of encoded communication sent from a sender to a receiver and then decoded by the receiver. But we know that the way that people interact with information is a little bit more complicated than that. And so the the interaction model shows a slightly more complex 
view of that. So it starts to incorporate more of a, a two-way exchange. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have our videos on, even though this is an audio or this will be an audio format. But, you know, we have, even though I've been doing a lot of talking, um, I'm still... <laughs> <laughs> I'm still receiving information from both of you, like by you know, by your your facial expressions and your nodding and smiling and your reactions to the things that I say. So that's more of an interactional model of communication because um, you know we're still exchanging information um, as opposed to me just putting things out into the world and hoping that people receive it. Um, and then there's the transactional model, which views communication as really integrated into our social reality um, in such a way that it helps us not just understand the world around us, but also kind of create and change our social realities. Uh, so really kind of getting into some very abstract ideas about how communication shapes our world and, mm -hmm. and how we're also able to shape our world with communication. So it, it's... Once you start to get into some of the, the nuances of communication, it starts to become really, really interesting. And even though it sounds pretty straightforward, as you start to kind of look at the world around you and, and look at how communication is done uh, mm -hmm. in practice, then you, you think about, oh, well, what if they did it this way? Or is that really achieving the goal set out by that organization? Um, is this an effective form of communication or is it rubbish and could I do a better job than what they did you know <laughs> things like that <laughs> and so it starts to get really really complicated and once we start to look at it from this aspect of, of science communication it's more than just communicating information about new scientific discoveries or educating people because there's so much that relies on the public acceptance of scientific health and environmental information, such as governmental decisions, that we really need the public to understand a lot of scientific information or health information and, and why it's important. And so that's why we are always emphasizing the need for better science communication or better health communication or science literacy and climate literacy. And um, it, it becomes really important, especially if you think about how the democratic process works. So if we have people that understand the need for science and scientific research and the need for funding to be devoted to certain types of research, then we need the public to vote for the politicians that will work on those policies and help support that type of funding for research. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And then you also like mentioned social media as a form of communication. Mm -hmm. so I would love to know how, um, like I know like a lot of my friends and people I know get a lot of their information from like Twitter or like other forms of like TikTok and things like that mm -hmm. so okay oh I was just wondering like the impacts of like um false information in social media because I know like, on social media there's so many different like people posting different things from different viewpoints and it's kind of hard to know like what's 
true and what's false and like all the bias so like how does that kind of impact I guess communication yeah it it presents a a real challenge and it's created something that is often referred to as the attention economy where you find that that um you know new information about science is not as exciting as false information. And there's been this idea called the novelty hypothesis that suggests that false information, which is typically new or novel or unique, um, is spread more quickly and more widely than true information. It's a little bit, it tends to be a little bit more interesting. It might appeal to people's emotions a little bit more deeply compared to mm. a new scientific development. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's hard to compete with that. So you have a lot of scientists out there that are now trying to be more present on social media so that they can kind of help um, clarify what is incorrect or false information or misleading. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cause I know in my, um, my bio lab, we did a lot of work with like Twitter and trying to, um, I guess, convey scientific information to like the general population in a way that's um, accessible and also interesting to people our age. Mm-hmm. So that was like a really nice skill to develop. And I think it, like it, it's definitely useful. Could another problem be like, getting the population to actually follow like these scientists in the first place because i think a lot of people probably their tendency is just to follow their friends or people that share the same beliefs as them then it's like this almost like i guess like positive feedback where it's like you just you want to keep going to what's familiar to you they keep sharing what's familiar and then like you just sort of stay in that just in that like never-ending loop and it's Mm -hmm. like so could a problem be like these people, I mean, the population just doesn't, they don't follow like more credible people in the first place. So they don't force themselves to really seek out new information. Yeah. It's, it's hard to reach those people because we do tend to stick with people that do think like us or have the same worldviews. Or like you said, Daniel, our, our friends and, and the people that we know and and it does create these echo chambers where we're not exposed to new information or um, perhaps uh, scientific evidence or credible health information. And so it's hard to reach those groups. Um, and if you think about for most people, and it, this is really only, you know, this is only for the United States, I can't speak for other countries, but for a majority of people in the United States, high school is their last, um, you know, exposure to critical scientific information. So, you know, we're surrounded by so many people that are very well educated because we're in the bubble that is Cornell. But you leave that bubble and, you know, not everybody has a, a college degree and not everybody has taken uh, really complex scientific courses. And, um, that help them think critically. So their their last kind of um, exposure to critical thinking and understanding how information is sent out into the world is 
is in high school. Um, you were like mentioning like in high school, that's when people are kind of like last exposed to like stuff like that. So um, do you think there would be like a way that maybe or some type of like policy to have? Because I know for me personally in middle school, like that was the last time I like ever like talked about like environmental science or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, like I didn't really learn anything in high school. So I was wondering, like, is there like a way you think that we could encourage schools to talk more about climate change and realize like how big of an issue it is? Because I feel like for me personally, I didn't really know how big it was till I like came to Cornell and like really read about it. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Daniel, did you have a, a similar experience? Uh, just about like how you mean like of high school being like your last exposure? Or, well, uh, being exposed to environmental science. Like when was I, other than other than college, did you have classes that discussed the environment and climate change? I mean, yeah, like back. Or I think maybe my high school was particularly good at it, but I remember even as early as like elementary school, like there's programs and actually like outside programs coming in to introduce just like, like better environmental practices and even just like really simple things like, uh, like uh, learning about composting and recycling. And, Mm -hmm. but I mean, yeah, I had some, I had some decent exposure to that even before going to Cornell. Yeah. And and we find that it kind of matches what you see in research is that there really isn't consistent information shared at, you know, um, earlier education levels about climate change or environmental science. So, you know, we have you, you two as an example, and I think that that matches a lot of people's experiences in the classes that I've taught, but also um, just in research, a lot of the research reports that there really is not a standardized way of discussing climate change or environmental science across the United States. And some schools view it as a a political issue, so they don't discuss it. And it, to me, that's, that's so shocking. (laughs) And maybe it's because I've, I've been working in climate change research and um, for so long I think, you know, I mean, my experience with it was I, I became really interested in it in elementary school and then not so much during high school or college. And, and I didn't have any kind of environmental uh, courses in, in high school or my undergrad, but it, it was when I was in uh, graduate school that I started to become really interested in it again, especially as I was studying globalization and economics and marketing and consumer behavior. So that was what really shifted my my perspective or my interest to go back to what what I was passionate about as a, a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old, however old I was when I started <laughs> It was really interesting in the environment. Um, so it, it um, yeah, I learned, I learned so much. And I guess I, I became really passionate about climate change uh, during my first master's. And then, and then I, I took a second master's that was really focused on, on carbon management and the impacts that it has, not just on, on the world, but it was a, a 
you know, it was a business degree. So um, we focus on how to help businesses survive. Oh, but yeah, I guess uh, exposure to, to environmental science and environmental communication. Um, and it, it's really difficult for me to, to think back to that and think about those experiences where people may not, you know, they, they haven't been exposed to climate change information in the same way that we all have. Um, and and it, it's, I think that makes it even more difficult to communicate to those audiences. And, and this is often, um, you know, it's one of the, the cognitive biases that we see is that we assume that a lot of people have the same information or the same knowledge that we do. And I'm so guilty of this because, you know, I'll walk into, I'll walk into a room or a meeting um, and especially in, in a classroom. And I think that everybody has the same knowledge that I do. So I just start talking and, and, and then I lose a lot of people. <laughs> so, um, and, but, you know, you have to also be careful because the way that I try to approach audiences, especially when I, I speak to a variety of different audiences, is that I, I don't want to sound like I'm talking down to them. And so I think that's why when I, especially when I walk into a, a classroom and I start talking about these ideas or these concepts is I assume that everybody's read and everybody knows what we're going to talk about. And then I just start talking about these concepts with the, the bias that people have the sa that same information, that they've read all of that information and that they understand everything the same way that I understand it. I don't know if you wanted to get into this, but I know that instantly makes me think of that video you show, like how like the South Park producers, they talk about the format, like the, whenever you tell a story, you want to say, you never just want to go, this happens, then this, then this. It's always the format of, uh, but this happens, therefore this, mm -hmm. and they do this, but then this happens, therefore, and then like, we, I guess you apply that to uh, storytelling, even with like climate change stuff. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and um, once we start to kind of move further along into these episodes, we'll, we'll dig into that much more deeply. But we've seen a shift towards more storytelling and my own personal interest in using humor and stand up comedy as a way of increasing public engagement in science. And so as we kind of move along in these episodes, we'll, we'll get to exploring storytelling and, and stand-up comedy more deeply as a way of uh, engaging the public with science. And for me, and, and I'm a huge fan of South Park, so <laughs> I, I, tend to, <laughs> I tend to reference South Park in almost every class that I teach. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, you know, they're really great at, at storytelling, at, at creating engaging episodes, especially as they've gotten older, you know, the show's been on for what, 20 some odd seasons. And, you know, at first they were yeah. kind of immature and joking around and, and really just, you know, they weren't saying that much about society or human beings 
early on in the beginning. I mean, they were a little bit, but you know, you could see the content mature as as they do, and you start to get into some of these deeper issues about the way that we behave through their episodes. And they, you know, they even when was it in the early early to mid 2000 maybe it was around 2008 um they had an episode where they they made fun of al gore for talking about climate change and they made fun of an inconvenient truth by you know saying that al gore was trying to make people concerned about this fictional monster called man bear pig <laughs> so <laughs> and you know it is <laughs> He's going around and, and wearing a cape and, and, and trying to save the world from this fictional beast called Man Bear Pig. And they make fun of him. And, you know, the, the episode where the, the kids get trapped in, in a cave and then they eventually come out. And then Al Gore takes the credit, even though he didn't help them get out. So, <laughs> so that South Park episode is is really digging into Al Gore and his, the message that he was spreading about climate change and some of the things that he had done around that, that time. And, and then in the last few years, I think it was maybe two or three years ago, they had another episode where they, they, um, they apologized and they said, man, bear pig is real. So they, you know, not addressing climate change, explicitly but you know for those people that follow close attention to South Park they knew that they were making fun of Al Gore and and his efforts to increase awareness about climate change and so they 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 apologized and and then they they cut to you know the the older generation so you know the the kids grandparents and things and how they they made a deal with the devil to push off the consequences of their need for stuff for later generations to deal with. And so now all the, the kids have to deal with man, bear, pig because of their grandparents, which is a very clear message about climate change. <laughs> so. Or he was totally serial as he always says. Super serial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I think it's a great commentary. I wish I could have, a, it'd be awesome to have a, a South Park class where you just analyze the evolution of, of their, their process and the things that they say about the world around us and, and the things that they're trying to say. But, you know, it, there's only so many things that I could teach in a year. Uh, <laughs> so I, maybe that could be another podcast is analyzing South Park. Anyway, maybe that, maybe that already exists, but um, you know, if we think about all of the things that could count as far as science communication, you know, South Park could be a form of science communication. So if you think about different TV shows that you watch or movies, uh, books that you read, podcasts that you listen to, advertisements that you see, and, you know, as well as uh, traditional education that you might receive about science, um, we're really, we could be exposed to a significant amount of, of scientific information. And there's, there's a website out there, and I wish I had looked it up before we recorded this, because um, it's been probably about two years since I 
had looked at it, but there is a, a website for the entertainment industry that uh, connects scientists with uh, movie writers or, or television script writers so that they can try to make the science that they use in their shows as accurate as possible. So you know, there's a great example with Ant-Man. So the quantum mechanics that they used to describe the process of shrinking Ant-Man down is accurate in terms of our current understanding of theoretical quantum physics. Um, you know, quantum physics is very abstract and we can't really test it, <laughs> but, um, you know, we can test small things and, and try and build towards that. But in terms of existing theories, it, it's, it tries to stay in line with those existing theories. Um, you know, whereas there's, there's other forms of science communication or, or things that we see in movies that are inaccurate and don't align with science. So there's opportunities there, even within fiction to uh, inform the public about science in a way that helps educate them about what's, you know, what we understand about the world. Well, there you have it, your introduction to communication and science communication. In the next episode, we will cover some of the core principles of science communication. If you have any topics or questions you would like us to address on an episode, send us a tweet at downtoearth underscore pod or message us on Instagram at downtoearth.podcast. You can find links to the materials we reference and read along on our blog, dearprofessor.org backslash blog. Mm-hmm.